All right, Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to read our text, and then I'm going to pray. And I want to ask you to pray for me this morning. Um, I'm going to do something that I think I've done one other time, and that's preach without notes. And so uh, I pray that y'all would ask the Lord to help me with that. Um, we'll see. We'll see how it goes in the live, in the live uh, action here. Hebrews chapter eight. Let's read verses one through six. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Let's pray. Father, my request is quite simple this morning. Show us Christ. Amen. In chapter 7, the author of Hebrews laid out for us the qualifications of Jesus as the high priest. We saw that he would be a priest unlike any other as he was compared to Melchizedek who had no genealogy. Uh, There was no history of where he came from um, and he had no recording of his death. All we have is in Genesis 18 this short snippet of who Melchizedek was in his confrontation with Abraham. And yet the Bible mentions him again in Psalm 110 and again in several places in Hebrews and comparing the priesthood of Jesus uh, with Melchizedek and making it distinct from the priesthood of the Levites. We walked through these uh, through chapter 7 and we saw several qualifications that would make Jesus um, the, the superior, the ultimate high priest and would make obsolete the old priesthood and the law as well. We saw that these priests come and go. They die. One comes, uh, one serves, he dies. Another one comes, he serves, he dies. And so, so on and so forth. They would, they would come, they would serve, and they would die. Yet Jesus, the Bible says, lives forever. We see that Jesus' priesthood is an eternal priesthood. So he is more superior to them because he lives forever. Because his priesthood has been established forever. His priesthood was not established by an ordinance like the old priesthood. It was established with an oath. It was established with an oath by the sovereign God who said in Psalm 110, I will make you for a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this oath, um, we look back at the oath that God made with Abraham, uh, that God said that he would make of him a great nation. He sealed that with an oath. <clears throat> Excuse me. He sealed that promise to Abraham with an oath, and he sealed the same promise to, to Jesus with an oath by saying, I will swear by none greater 
I'll swear by myself. Since I can swear by none greater, I will swear by myself. The evidence of Jesus' priesthood and, and this eternal priesthood uh, com- in comparison with that of the Levites it is seen and that Jesus is so much better, that his sacrifice was better, his, uh, his intercession is better. As a matter of fact, the law and the, prof- and the priest could not bring those whom they offered sacrifices to uh, into that, that right relationship with God and permanently, right? That they had to, they offered these sacrifices continually, showing that there was constant um, uh, on their conscience, that their sin was constantly on their conscience. And so he spent this whole chapter going through these qualifications and, and, and showing how Jesus is, uh, or qualified, I'm sorry, to be that priest. So now what he does in chapter 8 is he goes from just giving the qualifications to now showing the function of this priesthood. Jesus is not just qualified to be the priest, but what he's going to show us is how he is the priest. Matter of fact, it could be seen, be said this way, that he, it will, will see the realities of this in the life of the Christian my outline is quite simple. If you've, got, if you've got your bulletin, you want to write this down, there are three primary points. First of all, there is the position of this priest or the position of this ministry. The position of this ministry is seen in verse 1. We have a, a king who is set on his throne. And we have a priest who is set on this throne. If you don't get all these down, I'll, I'll go through them again as we work through these verses. The second point is the place of this ministry. The place of this ministry ultimately is in heaven, but it is seen in verse 2 in the sanctuary and the real tabernacle. And then thirdly, we will see the nature of this ministry. The nature of the ministry is that he offers gifts and sacrifices, but he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Back to verse 1, we see the verse phrase there, the first sentence. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. The things that he's spoken, he he even harkens back to chapter 1, as we'll see here in a moment, and talking about Jesus as king, Jesus as the priest. And he says, now we have come to the main point. We have come to the major point that I want you to understand and that I want you to grasp a hold of. Um, and, And that is this, that we'll see how... Jesus serves as this priest. We'll see how he reigns as this king. And even going looking in the next week and the rest of chapter 8, we will see this new covenant unfold for us. We will see how it is greater than the first, uh, than the first covenant that he gave. And so the major point is this, that the position of, this, of his service, of his ministry, notice the rest of verse 1, we have such an high priest. He said, hey, there's this guy that I've told you who is qualified to be our priest. And oh, by the way, we have this priest. And he doesn't name him until the end of, of, of this passage, which is, is peculiar. He just says, we have such a high priest. Now notice where he's at. He is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This gives indication to us about the kingship of Jesus Christ. If you'll turn Back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 13. As the author begin to lay, has begun to lay out in Hebrews that he's greater than the prophets, God has, uh, that God has finally spoke through him. 
who being the, the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice His position is that He's seated. He's not standing as a king in relation to a king. He's not standing. He's not cowering in the corner as though His kingdom is being plundered. He is not advocate he has not advocated his throne as a threat to his life and self-preservation. Notice he is seated, he is not running. He's not pacing around his throne thinking that oh no, what am I going to do? My plan is not working. He's seated. He is seated as a sovereign. As a matter of fact, uh, in, in, in the old times when someone was seated, it was it was a position of honor of dignity. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, in the early New Testament, teachers didn't stand before people. They sat. The people who would hear them, the congregation, would stand to hear the Word of God. And the teacher sat as a place of honor, as a place of authority, as a place of of dignity. So Jesus serving, and by the way, his other likeness to Melchizedek is this, that Melchizedek served as a king priest. Jesus serves as a king priest. And another office that he fulfills, as we'll see later, is as prophet as well, one of those Old Testament offices. So we see this king who is seated. His position is that he's seated. He is sovereignly in control. His kingdom has not been plundered. His kingdom is going forward as in power as he has decreed, as he has declared. He is seated as, as the sovereign who, who, runs over, who rules over all things. We see in, in chapter 1, of verse 3, that, that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 1 as well. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The place of Jesus is next to the Father on the throne. This is the king of glory. Folks, this is the king of glory that we have been summoned to worship this morning. That he is sovereignly holding all things by this whole world by the power of his hand. By the power of his word. That he is not afraid that anything will not work out according to him. This is seen as his kingdom marches forward. Um, look over at John 17. Something that we've been looking through and looking at in John uh, 17. This high priestly prayer. Look at verse 2. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify Him because He has uh, fulfilled the will of the Father and that will was, is seen in verse 2. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. God's gospel, Jesus' gospel does not return void to Him. His word does not return void. It goes forward and it, it accomplishes exactly what He wants it to accomplish. And so we preach the gospel, we preach the word, and He does the work. But not only is he seated as a king, he is seated as the priest. Look at the beginning there of verse, um, well, at the end. Who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, we we know that he's talking about the priesthood. That's what's explicit in this text. And so we see this priest who is seated next to the Father. Now, take this into consideration. If you go to Leviticus 8 through 10, you will see the offerings and all the service of the the, the priest. That they were constantly busy. There was constantly doing things. And think about the Day of Atonement. 
Every year they had to offer, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and he had to offer a sacrifice for the people. And that was perpetual. It was continually, continued on and on and on until Jesus came. And so there was always this busyness, this, all this activity. They were doing things. They were making offerings. They were, had all these things they had to do. Each had a responsibility. And yet we see our priest, our high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because his work has been finished. His work has been accomplished. He has, has accomplished all that he has desired to accomplish. There's no more work to be done. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. There's no more sacrifice to be offered. There's no more work to be done. If you then be risen with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. We see his position of power, his position of authority, his position of prestige, his position of dignity, his position of service. There's something unique about this king priest that we, that we know is Jesus, is that he serves his people. He serves his people. He serves us through, uh, inter- as a priest through uh, answering our prayers, through praying for us as well. John 17, it's, about, it's the high priestly prayer, it's called. That he prays for his people. He prays for our sanctification. I, I would even go so far as to say that he prays for our salvation. He prays for our sanctification and he prays for our unity as a church, as a body, that he would pray uh, for us in that way. So not only do we see this position that he is high above the heavens, he is on this throne up in the heavens, seated next to the Father. We see now the place of this ministry. Notice verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the tabernacle or pictures of the temple um, from the Old Testament. I don't think that pictures, and I don't even think that someone could aptly describe the majesty that was contained in the temple and the tabernacle. You consider what the, ta- what the tabernacle was made of. There were particular cloths that had to be made They had to be dyed particular colors. There was particular wood that has to be used. It had to be overlaid with gold and with silver. There was all these particulars. There was brazen or brass uh, bowls and things that were used. All these things, there was such intricate work. There was such detail and defined work in this this temple, in this tabernacle. You think about the temple, the majesty uh, of that temple as well. And even reading through the scripture, you maybe can get a little idea of its majesty, uh, of, of its glory, as it were, uh, in, in the building. I can't imagine what it looked like when Solomon built the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, what, it, what it must have looked like. But that's nothing compared to the place where Jesus serves. It says that he serves in the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. The tabernacle that was a pattern for the earthly tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle that was a pattern and, and was the, the earthly tabernacle was designed after this heavenly tabernacle. Now think about this for a moment. The Bible also says that there is no place that can contain God. He, he can't, you can't build him a building. Matter of fact, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. 
This is Solomon's prayer after the building of the temple. Verse 26, he says, And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. David desired to build a temple, but God said, No, you can't. You are a bloody man. Uh, your, your, your progeny will, will build that temple, and it was Solomon. Notice verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Can the earth contain God? Can God dwell in this place? Is he limited by space? Behold the heavens, and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. You think about that, where they built the temple, there was the veil, even with the tabernacle, there was the veil, the holy of holies, where they would offer the blood, and the Spirit of God would come down. And yet God is saying, I can't dwell in this house. I can't dwell in this temple. And you think about that. He said not only the heaven, but the heaven of heavens. Now, if you were to go out, and it's really neat living out here in the country where you don't have a lot of of light pollution, that you can go out and you can look up at the sky and you see an expanse of stars. You you can see all, uh, uh, if not with with the naked eye, you can with a telescope see all the constellations. You can see sometimes beyond that, you can see the planets. You get a little bit more powerful telescope, you can see a little bit further. But we're only limited by our humanity on what we can actually see. Right? We live in this universe. This, the, the, we, we've got this galaxy that we live in, and that's what we know. We can see that. What we cannot see is far beyond that. You think about that like... It's hard for us to fathom infinity, right? Now, we look up, and we can see high above the sky, right? We can see high above our head. But did you know the sky goes beyond our galaxy? Did you know the sky goes beyond that? The heaven of heavens, the expanse above all that we know. This is the place of his ministry. This is the place where this king of glory is ruling from at this moment. My nephew a couple weeks ago preached a message on the bigness of God. We need to understand the bigness of God, how big our God is. Hey, he cannot be fathomed with our finite minds. Hey, he cannot be anticipated with even by the smartest people in the world. And yet he has condescended to us and given us his word that we might have an understanding of who he is. You think about the majesty of the tabernacle and think about the majesty of the temple. How much more majestic is heaven going to be than what has been given to us in those tabernacles and temples? We kind of sing, we, you know, we sing about a mansion over the hilltop. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that we're going to be enthralled with that. Talk about streets of gold, it's going to be far more than we can even imagine. I don't think our minds are ready for us to, to, to understand what we are going to see. Matter of fact, Paul said, that we can't understand the things that God has prepared for us. This is the priest, this is the king of which this author is speaking of. He said that he serves in the place 
of the true tabernacle. That which the earthly was designed after. Look down at verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. That's talking about the previous verse. But look what he says. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. I don't think I'm going too far when I say this, but the pattern that we saw or or that they built the tabernacle after is the pattern for which we'll see in heaven. That's the true tabernacle. That's the true temple. And I don't think that we can even begin to fathom what we are going to see when we stand with Jesus face to face. That kind of makes me want to go a little bit sooner, right? I mean, thinking about these things, there's anticipation about this, but he serves his place. He serves in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle. Now to our third point, and this is where we will spend the rest of our time. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is a necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. We see the nature. And the rest of those verses, the nature of this ministry. What is the nature of Christ's ministry? Well, they're making a comparison to him and the priests. Now, those priests were ordained by God to offer gifts. Right? And you look in... I didn't take a lot of time to look through that, but there's, there's offerings and things that the people had to bring, that the priests had to offer. There were sacrifices that had to be made. There was continual work. For instance, one of the offerings from the people was a free will offering that you come freely giving of what God has given to you. I believe that's seen in our giving as a church. We call it tithe. You can call it tithe, call it offering, call it giving. But for us to understand what God, what, what, what's talking about here, the gift mean, talks about the benevolence or the, the, the graciousness of the giver. Right? That we give back because of God's goodness to us. If anyone here today and, and is giving begrudgingly, thinking that they have to do it, stop or repent of your sin. We get to give to God. We, God has graciously bestowed gifts upon us. We get to give back to Him. It shows our gratitude towards Him for what He has done. It shows how thankful we are for Him for what He has done. But there was these offerings, these, these sacrifices. We think about the sacrifice of the Lamb on Atonement Day that I mentioned. It was in their ordinance that they must offer these things. But notice what it says. That this man has somewhat also to offer. What did Jesus have to offer? What were the gifts that he... Well, let me tell you this first. The gifts that he gave through his sacrifice are grace and faith and repentance. Those are gifts from God. Those are distinct gifts from God. You see... The first two in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And, and there's a passage in, in, in uh, I think it's in Timothy, that talks about repentance being a gift that, that God would peradventure give or grant repentance. So we see that as a gift as well. Understand that if you have come to Christ by faith, through His grace, or by grace, through, his, through faith, those are gifts from God. Those are gifts to be thankful for. We ought to constantly be thanking God for our salvation. But what did Jesus offer? Well, if you'll look over at verse 27 in chapter 7. 
talking about the priest offering these daily sacrifices. Speaking of, of Jesus as a high priest, he doesn't need, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. That wasn't the way it worked with Jesus. Notice this. For the people, for this he did once when he offered up himself. What has Jesus offered? He's offered himself. He's given of himself. Way back in eternity past, there was a covenant made between the Father and the Son that he would become the Lamb who would be slain for the sin of man. God did not force that upon him. Jesus willingly gave of himself. You think about what was happening on the cross, that he was taken by force, um, arrested, but they did not throw him down. They didn't have to throw him down on the cross like some common thief. He said, I lay my life down for the sheep. That Jesus would willingly lay himself down, that he would give of himself. Secondly, he is given of his blood. Look in at chapter 9, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Right? There's another passage of <laughs> dealing with what we were talking about. He has obtained eternal redemption. It's permanent, folks. He's done that through his blood. Then he's given, a, he's given his body. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So his gifts are grace, faith, repentance, his sacrifice. And, and look, that kind of sums, grace, faith, and repentance kind of sums up all of his gifts. He's benevolent to us. If you haven't seen the benevolence of God this week, the grace of God this week daily in your life, ask him to, to show it to you. He will. But he's given of his body. We see his sacrifice. We see that he has laid down his life. Notice verse 4. Now, we look at that and we see how Jesus sacrificed himself. And that shows us how we must live for him. We ought to live with gratitude for what he has done for us. But we also ought to sacrifice our life for the furtherance of the gospel. And look, when I say sacrifice, I didn't mean it. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have to die. We're going to have to die to self. We're going to have to die to that old man. We're going to have to die to that old way. We're going to have to die to those old sins. We're going to have to die to those sins daily. But sacrificing ourselves for, the, for, for the, the sake of Christ, what does that look like? God, your will be done, not mine. I don't want my. I want to submit my will and my agenda, agenda to the will of God. It's not that I'm going to have my best life now. It's not that I want everything that I can get now. But God, what would you have for me to do? How would you have me to live my life? Notice verse five. So we see his, the nature of his of his ministry has been sacrificial. That he gave of himself. It's been. It's been gracious that he has given us gifts, or, or we could call it benevolent. Matter of fact, let's look at one verse, one more verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, in regards to that sacrifice. 
Well, verse 1, Paul has given instruction to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, saying, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. You want to know what that looks like? Follow God as your children would follow you. I mean, they're kind of like tag-alongs, right, Brent? Those two boys are like tag-alongs, right? Case is like a tag-along. Following dad everywhere he goes. Or following mom everywhere she goes. That's how we ought to be in following God. Now notice verse 2. And walk in love. That's kind of consistent with what we talked about in Sunday school. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You think about the, uh, the, the incense that was outside of the Holy of Holies. That that was a sweet savor to God. Is the sacrifices of our life a sweet-smelling savor to God? And by the way, we'll, we'll see this later on in Hebrews. As a kingdom of priests, we are to offer gifts and sacrifices to our Lord. And those sacrifices are from thanksgiving. Moving on to verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. These are all types of the things that are in heaven. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle... For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. All of these things pointed to Christ. It was the exaltation of Christ. It was to see the preeminence of Christ. Now notice verse 6. The nature of this service is seen in offerings and sacrifice. It's also seen in his mediatorial work. Notice verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry... By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. We see his mediatorial work. Now I want you to notice something. In verse 6 he says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. This word obtained, we saw this. Uh, matter of fact, if you'll turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, if you will. We see this in, in, verse, uh, in verse 1 of 2 Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This word obtained behind it, it has the idea of, of casting lots or by chance. But if you go to Proverbs 16.33, you see that even the casting of lots, even the rolling of the dice, its decision is of God. Now this speaks to a couple of things. One, in regards to 2 Peter 1, God's sovereignty and our salvation, that God has brought us to the point of, of the, uh, uh, to, to, to hear the gospel and to redeem us. But it speaks also to the work of Jesus Christ. It speaks to God's sovereignty in this declaration, in this decree. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Let me give you a good example of that. I've looked at this before. We, we, we've kind of, I've probably even quoted it before. But Acts chapter 2. Now Peter is standing in the square. And he's about to preach what I, what I would call, or have called, the greatest sermon in all of Christianity. I think Peter, with great boldness, stands and preaches the gospel to the very men who killed Jesus. Now this is the same Peter that was impetuous, 
that would just go off the handle. That we, we see all sorts of things about Peter in the gospel. This was the same Peter that had a big mouth. I mean, he'd just run his mouth for no reason at all, say things that he, he, he wouldn't follow through with. You think about when Jesus was preparing them that he was about to go to the cross. What did Peter say? Oh, I'm going to follow you all the way, Jesus. I'm going to be with you when you die. Jesus looked at him and said, You're gonna, before the cock crows, you'll, you'll deny me three times. Peter's standing by the fire, cursing like a sailor to prove that he was not a Christian. And then the only one that we see when Jesus is on the cross is John. Everybody else had left Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus. Peter, Peter was the one, speaking about his impetuosity, he was the one who had the sword that cut the ear of Malchus off when they came to rescue, when they came, excuse me, to arrest Jesus. And what did Jesus say? First, he picks the ear up, heals it, looks at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That's the Peter that we all come to know in, in the New Testament. But this is a different Peter. This is the difference between the Peter of the Gospels and this Peter is that this Peter now has the Spirit of God. Jesus told the disciples that I must go away. If I don't, then I can't, then, the, then another spirit will not come. Another comforter will not come. Another comforter meaning one of equal quality. And what the Spirit has done that Jesus could not do in his, in his physical body is indwell every believer. You think about that. Think about our, our, the work of salvation by God is a Trinitarian work. It is a, there's the work of the Father, work of Jesus, and the work of the Holy Spirit that He indwells us and He sanctifies us. This is the Peter who now has the Spirit of God upon him. And notice what he does in verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. If anybody asked who Jesus was, it was kind of a ridiculous question. Because God approved of him by miracles and signs. And think about all that he done that the Bible has recorded for us. Healed the sick, healed the lame, healed the blind, healed, healed uh, raised people from the dead, healed issues of blood. Matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that the books... The world could not contain the books if they were to be written on the things that Jesus done. Now, they saw all these miracles, and it wasn't Jesus doing them, as we see in John, I think it's 14. But it was God through him doing these things. And God was doing those things through Jesus for one purpose. To give approval of who he was, to show him, to show the world, this is my son. This is the lamb that has come to be slain. Look what else he says. Sorry, this leads to this question. How many miracles does it take to heal someone? How many miracles do you need to see before you recognize the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, folks, I, I hear of a lot of things going on in, in some of these so-called miracles, but you know what I'm not hearing of? People being saved. I'm not hearing of people coming to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So make no mistake, while God is a miracle-working God, miracles in that nature do not save. He goes on to say, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. They couldn't deny it. They saw these miracles. Now look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
he being delivered by the determinate counsel of God. This was determined and decreed by God before he ever spoke anything into being. This, sometime in eternity past, was determined by God that Jesus would die in this way. Now you say, wait a minute, that might make, might make God a monster. Oh no, it does not make God a monster. See, God can decree something and he does not cause man to sin to bring that to fruition. If you'll look at uh, chapter 4 of Acts, verse 27 and verse 28. I, I, a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, I talked about the tension of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And we see a great picture of this. We are responsible for our sin. These men who slew Jesus, these men who grabbed Jesus and hung him on that cross... They're responsible for that very act. But that very act was decreed by God for the redemption of man. Look at verse 27 of uh, Acts 4. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You know one thing that God can rely on with humanity is our sinfulness. He can rely on our sinful acts. Now, let me show you another example of this. One more in Acts, chapter 17. By the way, this goes back to chapter or verse 1 of our text in that He is reigning sovereignly over all things. God, unlike us, we put a plan into motion, and what do we say? I hope this works. Right? We plow a field, and we plant, we plant seed, and what do we say? I hope it rains. Right? Well, God plows a field, God plants seed, and God sends the rain, and God causes the growth. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's the preaching of... That, that's God at work. Now, I realize I'm kind of a little bit off script right here. But let me show you something else about God's sovereignty over all things. Look at verse 26 of Acts 17. And hath made of one blood all nations. That word nations is where we get our word ethnicity. It's ethnos. Of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. God, before he created anything has determined where you were born, whom you were to be born to, and where you would dwell. God determined before the foundations of the earth that I would be born to Rick and Jane Thomas in Birmingham, Alabama, February the 21st, 1969. I mean, that it just my birth was no happenstance. Your birth was no happenstance. It was not by chance or, or luck or coincidence that you were here this morning. This is the, 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 the control that God has. That doesn't mean that we're robots. It doesn't mean that we just walk around. No. We do. We are responsible for our actions. We're responsible for our sin. Yet God has set a sovereign plan in motion and is fulfilling that. Let me give you one more and we'll get back to Hebrews chapter 8. Go to Genesis chapter 50. And this is in relation to Joseph. Verse 20. 
This is where Joseph has is the ruler of, of or second in command of Egypt. And his brothers have realized who he is. And they are scared to death that they're going to do something, that he's going to do something to them. But notice what Joseph, because Joseph has been thrown, he was, he was killed, not killed by his brothers, but he was, had his coat of many colors ripped off, thrown into the well, sold to the Midianites, sold to Egypt, um, was a, a steward in Potiphar's house. Wife, Potiphar's wife makes an accusation, a false accusation against him. He goes to jail for a period of about 13 years, gets out of jail, and now he is exalted to this position where he's at. But notice what he says. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. The sinful actions that his brothers had against Joseph, God meant those actions for good. For what good? That he would save a nation. Right? That he would save that nation, Israel, so that he could carry that on um, and, and, and fulfill his plan. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 8. I said all that to say that all these things that we're talking about in relation to his kingship, in relation to his priesthood, has been determined by God beforehand. Now notice at the end of this verse 6, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, he's going to expound on the covenant and the promises later uh, uh, at the rest of this chapter and even going into chapter 9. But Jesus is the mediator. The priest, if you'll remember, mediated between the Israelites and between God. They were the go-between. It was an imperfect go-between. It was a go-between that couldn't reach the intended goal. But Jesus has accomplished that. The uh, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 said, There's one God and there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There's one. There's not many. There's one. So, when we confess our sin, you don't come to a pastor or to a priest to confess your sin. You can go right to God. You, don't, you, you can go right to God and you have Jesus who is mediating on your behalf. Now, let me give you a couple points of application as I close this morning. So we have a king who is seated on his throne, sovereignly seated on his throne. We see that he is... Oh, sovereign, the, the word of his power, he is holding all things together. I, I've heard, I've had, some, I had someone say within the last few weeks that, man, I, if, God, if people don't think God's in control, they need to look around. And folks, that's a reality for us. That God, it, that things are not just haphazardly happening. happening. I, I had uh, someone call me this week and say, well, I'm just spiritually anxious. And I said, Why? And started saying, well, all this stuff going on. I said, hang on a minute. We have no reason to be anxious. Because God has set these things in motion and everything is going according to His plan. The point is, are we releasing things that we're trying to hang on to and control and letting them work for our good? Now, I'm not talking about let go and let God. I think that's a ridiculous statement. But nonetheless, are we trying to hang on to things thinking that we're in control? I know there are things that I like to control, but guess what? Ultimately, I ain't in control of them. We need to submit to his kingship, submit to his lordship, submit to his authority. The second point of application. Jesus Christ as high priest intercedes for us on our behalf right now. Right now, he's praying for us right now. He has the ear of the Father 
in relation to us. And you think about that. If he is praying for our sanctification and for the unity of the church, should we not be praying for the same thing? In my sanctification, if I'm to be confessing my sin to Christ, asking for his forgiveness, then I should be asking him, if he is in control, if he is sovereign, that he would remove that temptation from me. Now, here's the problem. As Christians, we're, we're, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? You confess one, you forsake one, God removes that, guess what's going to happen? You find another one. You confess that, you forsake that, he moves that out of the way. We have Jesus interceding for us on our behalf in our salvation, in our sanctification, in the unity of our church. Folks, this is a high priest who has not failed in his duties. This is a high priest who has been touched with the sufferings that we, we are touched with. He, matter of fact, uh, earlier in Hebrews it says that he learned suffering by obedience. He learned obedience by suffering. Realize that if God is in, in control of all things, that the bad things that happen to us are for our good. They are to bring us to a point of submission to him and reliance upon him. This is the God who is seated in heaven at this moment. Would you submit to him? Let's pray.